Hello and welcome to the menu, Monaco's program on food and drink. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes, how a food stall selling Taiwanese steamed buns grew to become one of the biggest restaurant phenomena in London. That kind of like, oh, that moment of like, you're traveling and you had this very special moment having a skewer and then you want to take that feeling back. And I think that's really what sparked us in terms of restaurant design, menu design, drinks design. We'll also head to Porto to visit one of our favorite Portuguese wine producers. All the place where the vineyard is planted is so important. For me, the place of the vineyard is more important than the variety or anything else. All that in the next 30 minutes ahead here on the menu. Here in London, the arrival of bar restaurants has been one of the biggest phenomena in the capital's hospitality scene in the last decade. Bao started as a food stall selling traditional Taiwanese steamed buns in 2013, and the first restaurant opened a couple of years later. What's always been essential to the founders of the group is that each restaurant comes with its own identity, representing different aspects of Taiwanese culture. IMS co-founders Urchin Chang and Xing Tat Jung to talk about the story of Bao Restaurant Group and the new book Bao they have just released. First, they explained how the story of Bao was born. Yes, sure. So... I guess there's two parts to it. One is um, after we graduated from art school, then we went traveling around Taiwan. And then that's where we have the idea of starting Bao. So then when we came back from the road trip, the travel, then we started working on uh, the recipes and the dishes and then went on to doing pop-ups very quickly, started in markets and we opened the first restaurant in back in 2015. But when I... Because that was the first time that Whiting and myself had gone to Taiwan, so we we had graduated, and it was it was very much for us like let's go to Taiwan, where you know Urchin's obviously from Taiwan, yeah. Um, and when we, you know, when we ate around Taiwan, you know, Gua Bao, where we found it, you know, where the, where what Bao is um, mm. inspired by was very much like one of the dishes where we're just kind of like awestruck, like wow. I mean, it's so easy to think what Bao is now is so common common and the flavors like you're so used to but back back you know when we when we started bow it was so alien to us and we were so struck that when we came back to london you know we were like well, let, let's start a business yeah around, around at, bow really. at the time it was pretty unknown and you had to explain what a gua bao is and now thinking back you know you don't really need to explain it there's bow everywhere on all sorts of menu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've done a great job in introducing introducing bows to London, and and obviously your business has been a great success. I'm wondering, you mentioned already that you both have your background in arts. You went to art school. How much has that background helped you in making bow what it is nowadays? I think uh, it, it it runs in everything that we do. To be honest, I guess it's from. You know, like it feels like it's a food and art kind of crossover, but then at the same time, it's kind of having that small idea and then materializing that idea to, to what it is to manifest and to become what it is. So I think it carries through everything yeah. that we do, from menu design to interiors to everything. And I think, like, you know, icon you see as the logo, the lonely man that actually came from Urchen's, you know, artwork. 
Yeah, so、uh, it came from this word called "rules to be a lonely man," and then just imagine four to five men in oversized suit, you know, wandering around by the riverbed,、uh, looking for purpose and looking for that perfect solitude moment, and that slowly transform into a man that's slightly. Bigger, fatter, but then enjoying his bow very much. Doesn't want to share with anyone and having that perfect moment by himself. So that's kind of where the logo came from. Can you give me more examples of how this background in arts and design has been helping you in your work? I think I mean we write about it in a book actually, which is you know at the end of the day we're not we weren't chefs when we started bow and and in the same way even with design like we're not. Interior designers, we, as kind of artists, we look at things very differently and、uh, with a kind of unique kind of lens. And I think when we kind of came to produce Bow, we kind of did it in a very different way. And I think that's what really kind of made us who we are,、mm. um, and made who Bow was.、Um, and we always try to kind of think differently and do things differently and and creatively and, and innovatively. How of a difficult path is that to take? Well, I think. It's definitely like you know when when you do something that is a little bit different, you do sometimes question yourself for sure. That's、yeah. definitely one thing. But I think it's also what kind of gets us up in the morning, you know,、yeah. to, to do what we do. It's、really. what excites us that we're not doing what other people are doing, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I, I always think that like even if you have that kind of feeling of uncertainty whether you're doing the right thing, is that's also a good feeling because you're not just doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah. You've got so I feel like you've got such a philosophy behind this business, and you've got so much to say. How do you deliver that message? Obviously, you've just released a cookbook that does a great job in explaining your philosophy.、Yeah. But when you think of your restaurants and when you think of the customer experience, how do you tell your story there? I think we every time we open a restaurant, before we open a restaurant, we always. Uh, went on travel, and then we get inspired by different slices of Taiwanese culture or Asian culture, and then from there, that's where we collect these like bits of memories and experiences, and then internalize it to what we want to present to in our restaurant and to our audience. And I think from that inspiration, from that seed, then they went into the menu design. How do we translate a feeling that we had before? So. There's one、um, experience that we t- always talk about that we went to Osaka a few years back, and we went to a yakitori place, and there was a guy、uh, sitting next to us who just like order a high a chew high straight away, down it all, and then order another beer and then down it, and then it was a very very tiny yakitori joint.、Um, It, under a train station, and then we, as tourists, we were looking Instagram and trying to show the chef we want to eat this very special skewer that I can't see anyone eating right here. And then they were laughing, like the chef laughed off and said and spoke in Japanese, which I didn't understand what that meant. But I kind of just felt okay. They're not gonna serve it to us. But anyway, ended up that the guy next to us actually ordered that last. The one and only skewer, and then he then had his drink, and then he passed his skewer to us and say, "You can have it," because I, you know, I can have it any other time. And then it was that kind of like, oh, that moment of like you're traveling and you had this very special moments having a skewer, and then you want to take that feeling back. And I think that's really what sparked us in terms of restaurant design, menu design, drinks design,、um, and how to translate back to. Our restaurant in London.
What kind of discussions do you have when you are trying to do that? When you are creating something new and you have something in mind, like that feeling you just described, and then you want to translate it into physical things. Mm. What kind of debates do you have? What kind of discussions? How do you how do you nurture that creativity and make it happen? Mm, yeah, <laughs> I guess one of the thing is like the. I don't know if that answered the question though. Like when we do the chew high, so so that whole new drinks range kind of came from the idea of that we have had one chew high in Japan, and then we created a whole bao high idea. But then it has to give you that kind of like quenching your thirst, and you're just so eager to drink it, and then that bring you into the mood of eating a series of grilled meat. Um, would you say that? Yeah. Would. Kind yeah, I think of. like I mean, it's quite hard to distill such an experience into a restaurant. I think you know, fortunately, we've shared those experiences together, um, and so we yeah, don't need to explain. <laughs> yeah, we're on the same page, uh, and even though, even at that point, I think Whiting was with us in Osaka. Yeah, um, so we're on the same. You know, we're very you know we the same synergy, and I think to a certain point where some of it can be quite subliminal or, or just be a starting point of inspiration yeah. that not necessarily the audience needs to get. Yeah, and then no. on, the, on the flip side, you know, creating those little perfect moments, like sometimes you kind of write it out. So, for example, in Soho, we have, you know, a long day menu, which is our perfect moment in Soho, which is like you have, you know, you start with a classic, you wash it down with peanut milk, you have one bite of fried chicken, And a guinea fowl rice, and and a, and then a baozhong tea, and 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 it describes like the feeling and how you you're supposed to demonstrate yourself with that with that menu, and that's kind of illustrating it more to the point. And then there's certain cases like the experience that you described, Chen, which is a little bit more kind of the starting point, yes. the starting point yeah. of the feeling that we're trying to recreate in in Borough in that yeah. instance. But for example, like when we were designing Balboro, then we think about how the space can be a little bit grittier, can be a little bit more playful with more posters, and there can be a mixture of dark wood, light wood. So then you're in a more eclectic place or a place with history. Whereas, say, our Bao Soho restaurant is very pared back. Our inspiration was totally different. It's like more pristine. You have your perfect moment this way, that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think- it's funny though, actually, because. All of our favorite experiences with grill grill joints have been under train stations. Yes, and and when we kind of paint out that scene in Borough, we always write a scene of like how the lonely man should experience that restaurant. It's like it just has the train rattling across like every you know yeah. every so and so, and it's just like it, it makes it just makes sense right next to a train archway. So, so that perfect. kind of story of, of our experience of the lonely man. Kind of walking in, having that chew high quickly, and a beer and a skewer before going home on the train station is exactly what we, you know, we write to our staff when they read the brand book, essentially. Yeah, I think it's amazing to listen to you explain that philosophy because it's so rare. As you mentioned already, you've done things different way, and each bar restaurant has a different story and different style and different menus. And obviously, when you embarked on a mission to write a cookbook. It couldn't be just any cookbook. Obviously, it had to be something different. What was the starting point of what you wanted to create? Well, I think like, <laughs> if we rewind like four or five years ago, I think yeah. we, you know, we would we'd get a, quite a lot of publishers asking like we should write a cookbook, etc. Um, and part, you know, we had kind of hesitations of you know releasing recipes. I think everyone, you know, when you start out, it's like, well, why would I just tell everyone our, our recipes that we would so you know carefully safeguard? Like we would literally go in at the mm. you know before everyone else or 
after a shift to add kind of secret res- secret ingredients to recipes. So the cookbook to us was like, oh, can we get over that edge? That was the first kind of challenge. Hurdle, personal hurdle. But, you know, I think, <laughs> I think actually thinking back, like we would, when we had that discussion, we'd kind of go a bit OTT, which is like, let's do this, let's do this. And it was always a bit like, is that actually feasible? Yeah. <laughs> like, how long would that take us? And like, I think over the years, we kind of, you know, came across that hurdle of yeah. kind of keeping our secrets. You know, we wanted to be a little bit more transparent and also just wanted to be a bit more concise and kind of got our head around, you know, let's write, you know, our philosophy, our manifesto, you know, have that kind of legacy almost and then, and then have those recipes. And, and, and at that moment, it's like, well, let's do it. I think previous to that, it was it was a lot of kind of fantastical ideas of like yeah. comic books to huge Bibles to... To like 10 different books put together, <laughs> just dreaming basically, uh, but, but ended up, I think we're, um, we're really happy with, you know, what we decided to produce at the end. I feel like there's often like a certain uh, format for cookbooks. There's always a forward from the author where like they explain when they've been traveling somewhere in Italy and they, they came across all these amazing dishes and then you get a hundred recipes. Yeah. You do something different for example, I quite like that. Despite the, the story of bar restaurants not being awfully long, this book starts from the 1960s. We get a pre, what's it called? It's called pre prehistory, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Tell me more about that. I think, you know, everyone kind of A knew about our journey from a kind of store, like a car park shack to our first bricks and mortar at Bao Soho. Like that was kind of talked about so much in, ter- in terms of press and what was what we really wanted to do aside from kind of philosophy but in terms of you know the beginning parts of the book was really capture kind of you know where we were pre all that type of stuff like our backgrounds and art and design you know who we were that really kind of then took the transition to why we started Bow. I think it was quite important to kind of set that structure in place and, and to, to a point where we started to write about you know, I started to explore a bit on my grandparents and how they kind of came over to London. And even they didn't know. They were, you know, I had to do a bit of kind of soul searching with them, like trying to find those dates they came over. So it was really satisfying to kind of cement those and, and almost have that kind of timeline of, you know, three generations in, in, restaurant, in, in business. restaurant business. And every generation trying to do their, put their mark on what a Chinese or Taiwanese cuisine and what we can create to the yeah. next level or next part. Yeah. Do you think you have a message you want to send through the means of this book? There's so much talk about your philosophy. Is there something you want people to understand about what you've been doing all along? I think, like, your previous question on, like, design and food and when you go to a restaurant, how much can people kind of understand of that whole space? And I think the way we see it, and we always talk about it, like, you know, peeling back kind of layers of the onion, to kind of reveal more, <laughs> to reveal kind of more stories and more philosophies and re- reasonings. And I think the cookbook is a huge part of that. It's just, an, it's another kind of very innermost layer of the onion to really tell that philosophy. And it's, and it's, you come in, you know, as a diner and we want people to go through those layers and, and land on the cookbook, which is ultimately like, says a lot of stuff and a lot of about philosophy, history and why we do the things we do. And we don't need to explain anything. You can just read the cookbook, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> which is perfect. And by the way, talking about these recipes, getting to getting to a more tangible level um, for those those listeners who haven't been to your restaurants, I'm wondering, 
have you concluded now after all these years, what has been the most successful thing you have created in terms of what people want to eat in your restaurants? Well, I mean, like, um, top sellers, obviously, the classic bow. Yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's where we started. Yeah, actually, know. all our uh, all the dishes that we've started with are the top sellers. Yeah. Still, today, yeah. Yeah, I think I think you know, like we we founded Bao on the classic Bao, and it was you know we only served three dishes back in the kind of street food days, and it was a lot of you know perfecting that dish really, like in out day in day out, yeah, getting it right, and to this day, it's still one of the most popular dishes that and fried chicken. Yeah, but then I think aside from that, there are many favorites from all different different guests. Everyone has their favorite. So like for example, sometimes regulars would be asking me like oh you know I just really love this house salad dressing and it's so simple but at the same time like people just don't know the combination of a chinkang vinegar with a you know oil high oil ratio and sugar could you know give this type of flavor and it's very simple dish to do to be honest and it can be used on so many other uh, vegetables or I don't know there's like other many other things that are different like the peanut milk the peanut milk like is in the book as well and it's one of the drink that our chefs love to drink I remember the other day that we just had a full tasting and then I just see two sweaty chefs with two big glass of peanut milk drinking in front of me and it just felt so satisfying seeing them doing that Jun <laughs> Chang and Xing Tat Chung of the Bao restaurant group there and the new book Bao is out now You are listening to The Menu on Monocle 24. Up next, it's the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lelis. Japanese producers of the nation's premium Wagyu meat are looking to increase their exports to Southeast Asia and the Middle East. The beef is prized for its high fat content and extensive marbling, but has become less popular in Japan in recent years, partly because consumers have become more health conscious. An association of beef producers, wholesalers and the city government of Matsusaka in central Japan are planning to raise the quota of cattle exports by 2024. Argentine wine producers will be granted a preferential exchange rate dubbed the Malbec dollar as the government seeks to boost exports in central bank reserves. The rate, which will be introduced from April, will seek to support the nation's vineyards. Winemakers have been struggling with an inflation rate over 100% and extreme weather conditions. The Filderkraut, a mild, fine-leaved, pointed cabbage grown in Germany, has been awarded protective geographical status by the European Union. Although the nation's sauerkraut market has doubled in the last 20 years, sauerkraut producers prefer to use the less expensive round varieties. This as well as global warming has left the remaining 20 strains of the cabbage under threat. And plans for the world's first octopus farm have sparked serious concern among scientists. The site in Spain's Canary Islands will house one million of the animals, which will be killed by being placed in icy water. Experts have criticised the plans, calling the slaughter method cruel, and said keeping octopuses in confined tanks of 1,000 would lead to stress. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle24. 
Up next on the menu, we are off to northern Portugal to hear from one of the country's superstar winemakers. For two decades, Luis Chiabra has been at the centre of a cultural shift in Portuguese winemaking, leading a movement of younger independent producers. Besides consulting for wineries in Portugal and Spain, Chiabra has been successful with his own winery project, where he shows how the Douro Valley can make fresh and elegant wines. Monocle's Ivan Cavallio headed to Porto to visit the well-known producer. Portuguese winemaker Luiz Siabra first came onto the scene with his work at Neoport, a long-established producer known best for port wine, where Siabra was responsible for the company's still wines. In 2013, he ventured out on his own, with a laser focus on understanding the terroir, especially the soils, and a philosophy of minimal intervention in the vineyard and winery. The goal from the beginning was to show the soil um, and express a little bit what the soil can give and how how the soil, how the place where the vineyard is planted is so important. For me, the place of the vineyard is more important than the variety or anything else. So. That's why we named the wines after the soils. We have the shishto, we have the granito, and they all represent the stones, base where we work the soils. And even inside Odoro, we work at least with three different kinds of slates. Shishto is the slate. So we work the blue slate. Um, it's a harder stone, like you, find, like you can find in Priorato in the Mosul. The yellow slate, that is a slate with a bit more of clay, so then to give wines a bit rounder. And for the white wine, we work with um, uh, shishto, mica shishto. So it's when the when the schist meets the granite. So now, Luis, with with this wine, I, I noticed the you know, with the with the nose, it's it's a bit restrained. And then um, in the mouth, I, I've got this. It, there's there's good acidity, good minerality. What what was your your idea with this one? It's really to show the soil. So this this wine, shishto grew white, comes from a single vineyard, around ninety years old that is planted at in the meters altitude. This is, for me, it's a way to show the potential that the Doro has to produce great white wines. This is a vineyard I can harvest in October with great acidity, not that much alcohol. So Rabigato is as a variety, not very exuberant, so it's a very good way to show the soil, and it's the majority in this wine. His first wines caught the attention of critics, and launched him into the international eye as a superstar of the new Portugal Renaissance, which is made up of producers looking to present a new perspective on still wines from tradition-bound regions like the Douro. It's interesting to see that the Douro was created by the British houses, and uh, there's a big gap of information between the viticulture, the place, and the final wine. For many, many years, the British houses and all the port houses, they had the cellars in Gaia, they used to travel after harvest to the Douro Valley, collect the wines already made, bring the wines down. So the aging of the wines were more important than actually the the production and the vinification of the wines. Uh, people that was take, were taking care of the wines and blending, they never saw the vineyards, they never vinified in their life. The growers that were taking care of the vineyards, they never saw the final result of the, of their work in the grapes. So... Big, big, big gap between this um, viticulture and fine wine. 
And when I start the project, I started searching for that and searching for specific soils. So we went for all the universities to search for a um, um, soil chart of the Douro. Yeah, the Douro is the oldest market region, as we know, uh, with the rules that we know today. And what happened is there's no soil chart of the Douro. <laughs> what is very interesting. So we did find some military soil chart, but even that one is not complete. So we still do wines with, um, well, people call it minimum interventions, well, not inoculated yeasts, trying really to represent the, the soil, in different, vinifying different vineyards in the same way to see the difference of the place instead of the difference of the uh, vinification method. Siabra is also concerned about preserving the rich diversity of indigenous varietals in places like the Douro, especially with pressures today from commodity growers and large-scale wineries. So nowadays when you talk about Douro, um, you think about maybe five varieties. Trigue Nacional, the most famous, Trigue Franca, the most planted, Tinta Roriz, that is the same thing as Tempranillo, uh, but Tinta Barroca and Tinto Cão, uh, there were five varieties that were studied in the 80s. So when we got into the European Union, we did receive money to uh, replant old vines that were not productive enough. But of course, uh, the deal was we have to focus on less number of varieties. In those days, it was not much in fashion to have 10 different varieties in, one, in the same vineyard. So clearly, one thing that Doru really have to do it, and this is a work for more than one generation, it start to learn about all the different wine varieties that we have. We have, I don't know, more than 140 authorized different uh, grape varieties used in Doru. There are many grape varieties already a little bit known that start to have producers doing something about it, like Tinta Francisca, or well, we do it a Castellão, 100% Castellão, uh, a less known variety in the region, but you have uh, Rofet, that is a great variety, you have uh, Donzlin Tinto that no one knows well what it is. You have the Donzlin Branco that can give some very good wines. You have Malvasia Preta. You have so many different varieties that you really can, you really should study. It's just not the fact that we keep on the old vines and they're all mixed planting there. We really should know what are they capable of. Because the old vines are not going to stay here forever and they're going to be replanted. And no one is replanting these varieties when they replant an old vine. Regarding the changing climate, Siabra is keen to point out the problems in today's viticulture practices and how the push for higher yields impacts the environment. So we're discussing today the global warming, and actually global warming. You, you see the change in the climate. Having uh, 140 different varieties to deal with that, it's much better than having only five to deal with the climate change. In the Douro happened other thing also that is much more important than global warming was a change in the viticulture. We passed from small vineyards with smaller canopies, so less amount of leaves producing to a more modern and more easier to mechanize vineyard that have bigger canopies. So those vineyards can produce more grapes with more alcohol, with more sugar, with more... Uh, with the acidity, but they also consume much more water. And that's the difference. First, you don't want to have more ripeness, probably. So maybe you went too far and you have to go back. 
Second, you don't have water enough, and we see by the this year, in 2022, how it was. We didn't have any rain. The old vines with smaller canopies, they handle very well. Siabra's common sense approach to agriculture, which includes avoiding chemical treatments, has paid off, as has his research into lesser-known varietals. You can try his Mono C, Adoro Red, made from Castellon, a grape not commonly seen in that region. Today, his keen palate and curious nature has led him to also make wine in the Vigno Verde and Down appellations. In the bottle, he aims for wine that is restrained yet vibrant, balanced, and age-worthy. And his legions of fans seem to agree. For Monocle, in Porto, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thanks to Ivan for the report. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at 1300 in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods for Great Recipes. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineer was Kelly McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a in a soundtrack recommendation from Taiwan here is Jolin Tsai with Honey Trap thanks for listening and until next week